Welcome to the Book Tribute Podcast. I'm Sarah McDooling. I'm very excited today to be talking to the marvelous Danielle Binks. Danielle, hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It is a delight. I am such a fan of your work. Um, I was super, super excited to hear about your new book. And before I start pelting you with a million questions about said book, Mm -hmm. um, I thought, could you just uh, take a moment to tell the people listening a little bit about The Monster of Her Age? So The Monster of Her Age is a young adult novel. It is about a young woman called Ali who comes from a family of Tasmanian thespians. And to the point that when she was a young girl, she played the child actor, the main starring role of the monster in an indie horror movie starring opposite her equally famous grandmother. She didn't have the best experience on the film set of that particular movie. And she and her grandmother have had quite the rift for a few years now. But Ellie is home in Hobart for the first time as a 17 year old now because her grandmother, the infamous Lottie Lovinger is dying. And she needs to somehow reconcile her past with forgiveness. And at the same time, while she's home in Hobart, she meets a woman called Rhea, who is one of the founders of a feminist horror film club operating out of the beautiful state cinema in Hobart. And through her connection with Rhea, she starts to understand a little bit more about the ways that art can heal and reveal potentially. Ah. Just hearing you talk about it takes me back to the experience of reading it, which was wonderful. (laughs) Um, This is such a rich book. And I mean, I feel like it's almost hard for me to know where to begin because I feel like you're doing so many things on levels here in such a short time. Like it's only like a little bit over 250 pages and I'm like astonished by how, how rich this book is. But I have to start somewhere. So I'm going to start with movie trivia. Oh, okay. I, I adored, like, so there's, <laughs> whenever I'm reading a book that is about, you know, creative people mm-hmm. and, um, and there's reference to movies or books that, are, that only exist within this world, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. they're books and movies that have been made up for this story. I always get so sad <laughs> because I know that I will never be able to read that book or watch that film. In this case, it's, um, Blood and Jacaranda, the the film, yeah. it makes me really sad to know that I can never sit down and watch that film <laughs> <laughs> because you made it sound so so interesting. But sorry, I've I've veered off my question, which was just that there's so much amazing film trivia in this. I learnt so much um, about film history, particularly within yeah. Australia. Like I had no idea the first feature-length film was made in Australia. Yeah, and screened in Melbourne, the Tate Brothers uh, at the Athenaeum Theatre. Yeah, we had a very rich and wonderful film history from the jump. We had the McDonoghue sisters, who also have a little cameo in my book, uh, mentioned (laughs) briefly. We had, um, you know, Lottie Lyell. We had some incredible directors and some incredible writers and actors starting here in the silent film era that really really took off in Australia. And then talkies came in. And if anyone's a fan of singing in the rain, I always just think back to the talkies era that's discussed in that, in that film, which I absolutely (laughs) love that movie so much. And the silent film actress that's trying to transition into 
uh, talking and she talks like this. <laughs> is so beautiful but basically uh australia had a very similar issue where we didn't transition into uh the talky era of film the golden age of, of of cinema that was all over in america and then indeed america took hold of our distribution in australia as well so we really had no ways or mechanisms to raise money and to get film started here so we kind of just faded into existence for a little while there even though uh, the story of Ned Kelly and the Kelly gang was the world's first feature length movie. Uh, and then we kind of faded away a little bit. But in my book, indeed, correct, I wrote a fictional film history. I kind of reimagined a, well, I, I reimagined that Australia actually had a more robust film uh, history. Uh, and I'm so glad to hear you say that you wished, I hope you wish that like the Lovingers were a real family because yeah. they were kind of... In, <laughs> Kind of inspired by the Barrymores, uh, Drew Barrymore's family tree, which includes the, the silent film star John Barrymore, her great-great-grandfather, I want to say. I'm a huge Drew Barrymore fan, and I'm just fascinated by her whole family of um, thespians, and that's very much the Lovingers. And I totally feel that if you feel like you wish that the, this fictional film history was real, I feel that when I read the likes of Taylor Jenkins' read. You know, the seven, the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo, uh, her latest one, Malibu Rising. I totally wish that all of that existed because I want to go off and watch Evelyn Hugo's filmography. Uh, and I hope that readers of my little Aussie YA book equally feel like they wish Blood and Jacaranda was a real film, that The Lovingers were a real film dynasty, that the, uh, the feud I've imagined with Errol Flynn was real and they could troll through <laughs> old newspaper articles. And I, I wish that as well. I I very much wish it because um, I think there's something really magical about making people fall in love with a work of art that only exists in the author's uh, mind because it allows you to really talk about the effects that art has um, culturally yeah. and I feel like that's that's what so fascinated me about this book like I consider myself so the, the book is a love letter to movies. It's particularly a love letter to the horror genre. Mm -hmm. um, and I like horror film, but I realised reading your book that I don't know very much about it and I haven't thought very <laughs> deeply about it. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I'd ever really thought about looking at the horror genre through a feminist perspective. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the book includes your the marvellous... Um, Oh my gosh, you're going to have to remind me of the name of the film club. I, I can only remember is that. It, is it Linda Blair, who I quote at the very beginning? Linda Blair from The Exorcist? Is that what you're talking about? No, the, the name of the film club, but now I want the Oh, um, The Final Girls. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, The Final yeah. Girls, yeah. It really um, got me thinking about the way women are represented in horror in a way that yeah. I just hadn't before. Um, but whilst including all of this, it is also a beautiful story. It's a beautiful romance. You've got a gorgeous, fluttery tale of first love. Yeah. You've got a really intense family conflict. Mm -hmm. And you've got a main character who has, um, you know, really traumatic stuff to deal with in the past. And with all of that going on, it's still delightful and funny and cute oh, and like to, to me being able to have all of those that rich emotional notes being hit 
and all of that content, like just all of that thought provoking <laughs> themes and discussions um, in 250 plus pages. Like, how did you do that? You've just said everything that I like writing about. I like writing about messy, complicated families. I like a little bit of love stuff in there, but this is, this is me kind of going big with the romance. This is an LGBT romance. Uh, Rhea and Ellie, spoiler alert, have a little <laughs> thing for each other that I think, I hope you can see from their very first meeting. And from there, it's just the heart fluttery. It was pure joy for me to write that because I wrote this during lockdown and Ellie and Rhea totally saved me during my lockdowns last year. Writing about them, I, I joked and I said it felt like I was writing because uh, my book is set in 2019, I felt a little bit like Noah on the Ark pairing everybody up and saying, you're going to be together now because I know what's coming in the future and you need to be together and okay and happy. But no, truly writing Ellie and Rhea was just pure joy for me. Uh, it's a lot of my heart and feelings on the page with those two. And I so will love it if other people love them too. Um, but more to your point, I think I always gravitate towards messy family drama. And this was just pure joy to research, uh, looking for, it, it wasn't hard to find instances of Hollywood family dramas, true family <laughs> dramas. Uh, Carrie Fisher provided us with a lot of fodder uh, throughout her many memoirs and just life, uh, certainly, as to Drew Barrymore, truth be told. But then hinging all of this is a bigger discussion that I did indeed want to have about art and how important it is for people to tell their own stories artistically, creatively. There's a little bit of discussion in there about can you separate the art from the artist and should you, uh, which, you know, I don't think will come as a surprise to anybody that I was very inspired by this book in the wake of the Me Too movement and specifically how focused on Hollywood that was. And also just the knowledge that we all now have that Hollywood hasn't been the best place for child actors in particular. And there's been no really truly great story of young people surviving Hollywood or any kind of machine industry. We're also living in a free Britney era right now where we're all suddenly knowing a little bit more about what she's been through for a, a decade now. Uh, so all of that went into this and I was having bigger discussions, I hope with the reader, but you know, because I couldn't outright say art is important and we should support <laughs> art and artists and booksellers and bookstores and independent bookstores and you shouldn't fund somebody who just wants to colonize the moon as a fabulous campaign of US indie bookstores said. I couldn't come outright and say that. That would just be me shouting at the reader for 200 pages. So I cloaked it all in a discussion of the horror genre, which I do think is a very misunderstood genre, particularly through the feminist lens. Most people think of horror and they do sometimes rightly think that it's a genre that has just put um, the decapitation of women on the screen, which is accurate, yes. Uh, but it's also true that horror is, statistically speaking, the one genre that uh, will often have more female protagonists than male protagonists on the whole and will give women more speaking roles and more speaking time than men. This is something that the Gina Davis Institute has investigated. Uh, Gina Davis, the actor from A League of Their Own and Thelma and Louise, oh has got a wonderful institute that delves into women in film represented both on screen and behind uh and she has you know repeatedly found that horror is the is the one genre where women make up more than men in terms of 
content on the screen, speaking lines, etc. And it's true as well that that's often because women in certain horror films, like the slasher genre, they have statistically found that women who die on screen in those particular films die for longer. So we're seeing them in pain for longer than the male characters, which is not great. But that's also a kind of um, a throwback to the 80s slasher films. It's not so much prevalent today. Today we get, I think, a lot more nuance in horror and we get a lot more nuanced representations of women in horror. Um, just thinking about mothers represented in horror films, they run the gambit from the truly sinister in Carrie, Carrie's mother who locks her in the closet, to think about Wendy wielding the axe in The Shining and coming to the rescue and, you know, uh, screaming very well, but ultimately saving herself and her son. Um, just think about women in horror films. Think about Florence Pugh's character in Midsummer, which is a very yeah. different kind of horror film now as well. Think about how that is ultimately about her grief and then almost play acting it out in this very surrealist cottage core setting. Um, women run the gambit more often in horror films than anywhere else where they can be sometimes one note depending on their characterization and i kind of wanted to pick that apart and that's also kind of ali's story as well you know people think that they know what she's about and who she is because of her family and because of this one role that she had in this fairly iconic australian movie but there's more to it just as there's more to the horror genre for women as well you just got to dig a little deeper in any kind of art uh and you, uh, you did it so well. I and mean, listening to you talk on this subject, like I've been so excited for this podcast, <laughs> reading the book, because I, I knew that how eloquently you would speak about this and you doing everything that I was looking forward to, <laughs> pretty much. Like, um, because yeah, I find it really, I find it really fascinating. And the fact that a genre who, if you just grabbed someone off the street and they were unprepared for this discussion and you asked them. Do you think uh, horror movies like are a good representation of female characters? They would probably initially gut instinct say, well, no, because mm -hmm. horror is sort of, I guess, more traditionally known as being for the slashes where just a million yeah. women get murdered horribly, usually mm -hmm. like very quickly after, you know, mm -hmm. sex. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I, I just find it such an interesting discussion to like sort of flip that the way that you just did and examine you know how are examine horror from a feminist perspective and the trope of the final girl like it is the final girl the mm. the, the girl survives more often than any other character in this yeah and that's also partly because they do say that in horror you need someone to root for and someone that you want to live and women are often presented as this ideal of um the innocent you know there's a lot of sexual innuendo wrapped up in the final girl that she has to be pure etc although some films play with that trope like in scream the scream yeah. movies with uh spoiler alert by a few decades surely it's a 90s movie if you haven't seen it yet i'm <laughs> so sorry spoil it. Yeah. But <laughs> the the two killers in scream know all the horror film tropes uh, you know, they know that anyone who partakes in sexual activity in a horror film is more likely to die because it's also yeah. a little bit of a morality tale. As is, if you think back to the original horrors, fairy tales were horror films of the day, horror stories. I mean, the presence of wolves eating people constantly, and they were totally morality tales. You know, Goldilocks and the Three Bears is literally saying, don't go jumping into random beds, young women. Um, 
you know, Little Red Riding Hood is don't veer off the path, don't talk to strangers. Uh, these were horror tales and they were morality tales designed by the Brothers Grimm largely to moralize young women in particular. Uh, we've had horror in our lives for a very, very long time. But it's interesting that horror, especially now, is coming into the modern age. And it's fascinating to see diversity talks in horror films as well. Something that Jordan Peele has done brilliantly in the film Get Out, for instance, which is about passive racism. Uh, you know, the well-intentioned, well-meaning, but actually quite sinister um, liberal, speaking in American terms. Uh, that's all really, really fascinating. And it's been interesting Jordan Peele in particular has been part of this huge movement of black horror and there's a documentary film about it where they actually say horror works through um, the diversity lens because in America in particular black history is black horror the history of, wow. of you know African Americans in America in particular that's a horror narrative you know the entirety of their history is horror uh, so of course they understand the genre brilliantly and diversely and dynamically and the fact that they're now telling those stories is just fascinating and I, I fully embrace it I, I absolutely love it uh yeah Lovecraft um, Country County that Jordan Peele was producer of and that he's brought back the Twilight Zone as well just fascinating yeah. seeing this through a very different lens these old horror narratives just really, really fascinating. And I think horror does that because horror can be dynamic. Horror is the one genre we have, as well as maybe romance, where we see modern ideals and changes in society through this distorted lens so that we can have bigger discussions about it, yeah. which is necessary and important. And I found this as well while researching. Um, I found that at various points in time, the horror films that were coming out were reflective of social changes. So things like Carrie, the film Carrie, and how much blood has significance in that film, and that book from Stephen King, that was at a time when the AIDS crisis was hitting the, country, was hitting the world, and blood took on new significance, right? So yeah. these are little changes. And it's stuff like Rosemary's Baby, which is Possession, uh, and it kind of speaks to the women's liberation movement about women having autonomy over their own bodies. If you don't know what Ros Rosemary's Baby is about, it's, it's a doozy. Uh, <laughs> but once you know that, once you understand Rosemary's Baby through the women's liberation lens, you think, oh, wow, this is having big commentary about women's agency over their own bodies. This is fascinating. And we still have that today with the likes of Jordan Peele doing Us and mm. Get Out um, and definitely looking at ways that he can discuss racism in America through the horror lens, which I think is a really natural narrative function for that discussion. Brilliantly so. And maybe you'll get more people willing to listen to that talk because it's being wrapped up in a genre that they're yeah. pretty, they think is pretty fun. They're happy to have some jump scares from, but probably don't realize that they're having a much bigger discussion with the filmmaker than they realize, which is what I also love about the horror genre, that you can sneak in those bigger discussions wrapped up in this fun. I, I mean, I find it fun. I like jump scares. I like terrifying myself. I am somebody who does at least once a year try to watch The Exorcist in the dark when I'm home alone <laughs> because I just think that is a total thrill and I, and I enjoy it no end. <laughs> I find 
this discussion, this this topic and discussions on this topic to be completely just delicious. I'm like fascinated. Um, and and what you just said about filmmakers being able to have these wider discussions with their audiences without mm. the audience maybe being aware of it is a hundred percent true of the monster yeah. of rage. There's so it is a it is a gloriously rich book that is um, that manages to tell a, re a really simple, satisfying uh, story, a human story, but also effortlessly, just like packed into every page are these bigger discussions. <laughs> um, I'm so I'm so excited for kids to be reading this, and I did want to ask. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a YA. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. Whereas your your previous book, which I also love beautifully, the Other Mouse Chains, was for middle grade readers. Yeah. What was it like for you changing readership? Like, oh gosh, I think I'm going to be an author who always wants my next project to be the one that I'm not working on. So when I was writing the year the maths changed, much as I love middle grade, and that was totally the right lens through which to tell that story, I was dreaming up the monster of her age and pining for writing YA. And I totally just wanted to write a romance as well, which I couldn't really do in middle grade. It's not really in the sense and sensibilities of that readership. So when I was writing the year the maths changed, I was dreaming up Ellie and Rhea totally because I was you know, the grass is always greener on, on the other <laughs> side of what I could potentially be writing. So, so when I was writing The Monster of Her Age, I was also dreaming up a new middle grade novel as well. So I'm going to go back to that readership, back to my kind of home turf eventually for the next project. But yeah, it was a totally different change up. But I think I tend to gravitate towards, like you say, the bigger ideas I'm trying to have with the reader that totally depends on who the reader is going to be. There are some pretty um, profound and scary topics kind of in the monster of her age. There's a lot in there about emotional abuse, about your family not believing you when you've been through something really traumatic. And that's definitely lends itself more to teenagers, I think, because, you know, reality is, yes, young people of all ages could be going through that. But considering how darker, it, slightly darker it is, I wanted to aim it higher up the, the reading level. So I was very conscious of that. But, you know, I did love writing the year the maps changed. I loved writing kids tooling around on bikes in the 90s, which <laughs> when that, when I was writing that, I thought, geez, a kid's going to know what riding bikes is such a liberation and how important that was to 90s kids. And then everything happened in 2020. And I saw more kids riding their bikes around my neighborhood than ever before. And I thought, okay, some things have come back. Okay, cool. Still relatable. Yeah. <laughs> Still relatable. Awesome. Um, but I, I love both middle grade and, and YA. I'm a, I'm a big fan of both. And I, if I can adeptly swing between the two throughout my career, I will. Depends um, on how the, the monster of her age is received. I know that the year the maps changed has very kindly been embraced by many readers. Uh, I know that that's being studied in schools. And my favorite mm -hmm. thing is when young people reach out to me and write to me and say, oh my gosh, I actually enjoyed reading this for school. Like they're surprised <laughs> and they just want me to know that they're shocked. And I kind of say, thank you. <laughs> that's a, a double win though. It's like, it's a lovely thing to hear just on the face of it. But when you think about it more, the, the challenges kids face, like there's no surer way to kill a book for a kid sometimes than make oh, yeah. it. Yeah. So, it's like such a win to have a kid in that mindset being like, I have to do this for homework. And then oh, totally. 
I do not take it for granted in the least. <laughs> I'm always just very, very grateful. And when I do school talks with kids, knowing that they're studying my book, I do wonder if I should begin by apologizing and saying no author sets out for teachers to write essay questions about what they've written. I'm so sorry. But for the most part, I, I do. I get the, the genuine surprise that they liked the novel. And then they do get a little bit angry at me for the sadder parts that are in the oh. novel. And they kind of accuse me of, I didn't see that coming. How could How you do you? that to it? And I kind of <laughs> say, you know, it was in the prologue. I was trying to <laughs> foreshadow it a little bit. Um, so yeah, but I'm, I've been very moved by the love for the, the, the year the map changed. And I love that that was my first novel and that it hit very close to home. Uh, literally it's set where I grew up uh all of that is just my heart on my sleeve in that book uh absolutely it's a it's a beautiful book um I can completely see schools maybe slightly higher grade levels but like um having so much to like if schools pick this up um which you know, if you're reading this and you happen to be a teacher or a librarian, <laughs> I can't stress enough how much amazing stuff there is in this book to to um, have discussions with kids around. You briefly mentioned um, the basically gaslighting, right? Ellie is mm -hmm. is is has gaslighting. Is gaslit? Is that the correct term? <laughs> all <laughs> apply. Yes, yes. All apply. <laughs> correct. Yes. Yeah, and the and the horrible thing about it is, is that this book, I'm sure, I'm sure she was gaslit by people on the film set, but this book is centered around the way in which family members, yeah, um, did did that to her and did it to her, you know, from a place of love and and guilt, mm -hmm. and so, like the discussions around around that, it's I mean, it's heartbreaking stuff, but handled so delicately and so sensitively, and um. And so hopefully, like this is, yeah. this is ultimately, we've talked about, you know, scary horror films and mm -hmm. um, uh, childhood trauma, but this is a book that's going to leave you with a smile on your face because it is a hopeful, beautiful book. Oh, thank um, you. And I mean, you must have written this mostly last year, right? Yeah, throughout. Uh, throughout lockdowns. It was edited and written throughout Melbourne lockdowns, 111 days of them. What was that experience like? It definitely channeled into the book in various ways. I mean, one of the reasons I decided to write about a thespian family is that's very different from my own. Spoiler alert, I do not have a famous anyone in my family. Oh. <laughs> uh, and I set it in Tasmania. Like I said, because the year the maps changed was set where I grew up and the protagonist in the year the maps changed was the same age in 1999 that I was. It was just very close to me. It was based on my experiences growing up during a particular time period in Australia. So I wanted to give myself room to move in my imagination and away from all that. So I wrote, you know, started bringing up the, year the, uh, the monster of her age, set it in Tasmania, famous family, a grandmother is dying. And then my own grandmother passed away in January, 2020. And that walloped me totally. And then the pandemic hit. And then my uncle got sick with pancreatic cancer. So it was very, very strange that I felt like 
my made up stories were following me. They were making me feel. And I was not prepared for that, but you know what? I channeled it all into the book. My publisher was brilliant and I submitted my first draft and they very much, they very clearly said, do you want more time with this? Because we know that you're writing this during lockdown and it's clearly hard. And it was, it wasn't my best work. There was still a lot more I wanted to say and do. So this book was meant to come out in April of this year, but my publisher very kindly asked me what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to just bail out on it and put it aside for next year. I wanted to channel what I was going through in real time into this book, which is a book about grief and trauma. Yes, but it's also about coming out the other side of that and a family being stronger. So it's all in there, you know. Oh, Danielle, I'm, I'm absolutely so, so sorry. Like last year is terrible. Um, what has, what you've brought out of it in this book is truly beautiful. Um, Thank you. It's, it's funny talking about it now too, because right, the whole book is about what happens behind the scenes in a creative enterprise. And now I'm having to talk about that very thing and talking about this book. And it wasn't easy, just as it wasn't easy for Ali behind the scenes of this film that everyone thinks they know all about. So it's it's interesting that again, I'm being haunted by my stories. (laughs) I'm being made to live them in real time in some capacity, even though on the surface level, they're very different from me. But you know, last year I I experienced more loss than I ever than I ever had before and it totally dispelled me of the notion that only teenagers go through firsts Mm. um you know I was experiencing a lot of firsts and they're all kind of in this book too um I'm I'm definitely someone who I do think wears their heart on their sleeve in terms of creativity so I try and channel it and that was good for me as well and like I said the Ellie and Rhea stuff being as romantic as it is, that was me trying to save myself a little bit last year too. So I, I kind of gave them each other for myself because I just wanted a happy ending in some capacity. And that's the true heart of the story, I think. That's how Ellie gets to know herself ultimately is from someone yeah. else coming along and kind of saving her. Like she's the final girl in her story. Absolutely. But she doesn't get there on her own. She's saved by various people by by Rhea, by her cousin Yale, who I also absolutely enjoyed writing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a tribute to my own cousins who are my best friends. Yeah, it's all in this book. Absolutely. Well, I mean, all the applause and hats off because it's a joy. It's a, a real joy to read. Um, you have tantalizingly mentioned that your next book might be a uh, middle grade. I always kind of, as we approach the end of the podcast, I always like to ask authors what's up next. Are you able to say anything more about that or is it just too early at this stage? Um, I'm in the dreaming up stage, but I have a desire to write about last year, which I know many people are going to instantly retract and, you know, wince at hearing me say that. But I would like to write about what we went through last year with a little bit of a mystery in there too. I have this idea of two kids who are writing letters across the pond, trying to unravel a mystery as they're both in lockdowns in two very different countries. Uh, And it's that connection that gets them through in many ways. And this overarching bigger mystery that they kind of get caught up in as the pandemic and lockdowns are raging 
it's nice for them to have a separate project to think about. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the way that I'm tackling it. And I know that some people would like me to write a sequel to the year the maps changed, but I don't feel like I need to write an outright sequel. But in saying that Fred, when a Fred, my protagonist in the year the maps changed, was the same age I was in 1999, I did have the thought of, wow, so she's the same age I was in 2020. She's an adult going through this too. I wonder what she's up to. And I did wonder if I could just give a little hint, a little passing note of maybe what happened to Fred and Jed and Mr. Curry. So this might be a connected universe in some way, but it won't be their story, their continued story. You might just know how it all ended up for them. Maybe. <laughs> I, okay, this is a podcast, so people can't see what my face is doing right now, but my face is is, I believe, expressing disbelief and joy, incredulous <laughs> joy. That sounds phenomenal. Oh, my God. I I'm love. working on it. I'm working on it. I've, <laughs> trust me, I've, I've got two publishers now. The Year the Map Change is coming out in North America next year. Exciting. And they're keeping the Australian setting, amazingly. It's going to be an Australian book in America, very much telling, you know, the story of what happened during Operation Safe Haven in 1999. I was shocked to hear that. Um, so my publisher in both America and my publisher here in Australia have both said, ooh, a middle grade, yes, please. So oh, that alone is, I feel like I'm onto a good thing by going back to middle grade. So yeah, that's in the works. TBD. Uh, yeah. I love the idea of you writing both. Um, I feel... I feel, I don't know, is that an, circling back for just a second on your American publisher, is that like an unusual thing for them to not de-Australian Nia's a book? Like, oh, I thought so. I, yeah. when the year the map changed internationally, I kept saying to uh, everyone, I kind of said, no American's going to touch this unless I change the setting from the Mornington Peninsula to like San Francisco or something, you know, it's just not, it's just not going to happen. There's no way. Yeah. Uh, and then there was a way an American publisher, HarperCollins, uh, Quill Tree Press, uh, which is an imprint of HarperCollins in the U S came along and said, we actually really love that this is telling an Australian tale and that it's an important Australian historically context, contextual story as well, because of course Americans know of Australia's treatment of refugees and asylum seekers through the modern lens now, which is awful human rights abuses. And the year the map change is kind of telling the story of how we got to that point. So it, it is of a benefit to American audiences too, since they often would hold Australia up as this beacon of that's how you do border control people. And it's worthwhile bringing another side to that discussion, which is hold on, this isn't right though. And let's unpack that. And it must be said with my literary agent hat on, which I also do as my day job. Um, <laughs> I have heard tell from American publishers that they think there is a literary wanderlust happening because Ooh. of the pandemic where Americans are just more open to reading foreign stories. And one example they give of this is uh, Netflix viewings from American um, watches, oh. subtitled television shows and movies have gone through the roof. Like Americans are actually sitting down and watching subtitled television series like Lupin, very popular. All the manga adaptations on Netflix, very popular. They're just really into it and likely because they can't travel as freely as they used to, they're very curious about what the world has been up to. So a literary wanderlust is indeed happening, a little bit of a, re of a renaissance. That is um, fascinating. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I know at Booktopia we've seen astonishing manga sales. Um, yes. Over, yep. over the past year and a bit. Yeah. That is, that is very interesting to hear. Um, yeah. It's encouraging. It's really encouraging. And, uh, you know, it's probably a good thing if the rest of the world, Australia included, has a similar wanderlust and curiosity about what's happening around the globe. As I think we had very early on in this pandemic, we were watching what was happening unfolding in Italy and Spain and China everywhere with horror and empathy. And we were genuinely curious about what was happening. And even now we look at the UK Freedom Day and think, geez, how's, how's that going to go? Uh, we have a curiosity about how other people have dealt with, with what we're dealing with too, but also just generally, and maybe we feel it even more in Australia because we are indeed lockdown border wise. Yeah. I think it's a good thing if we have curiosity about what's happening in the rest of the world. That is only ever a good thing in my, in my mind. Yeah. It, it, you know, we could always use a bit more of a flex of our empathetic muscles. So yeah, a literary wanderlust. Who knew? Who knew that would be a silver lining flight out of 2020 and 2021. Uh, so yeah, the year the map change coming out in America next year. And we've already discussed uh, possible book cover looks for the American Ooh. edition, which is just thrilling to me. <laughs> oh, congratulations. That is Thank amazing. You. Thank you. Uh, so we're, we're running a little bit short on time, but before I wrap up, I'm going to just completely put you on the spot. And I'm sorry. <laughs> and if you don't, if you, <laughs> if you can't think of anything and don't want to do it, we will just get, we will just edit this part out of the podcast. <laughs> But um, I just wanted to throw to you, like, do you have anything that you've read or watched lately that you've really enjoyed that you'd like to recommend to people? Oh, please. Who are you talking to? Of course I have an answer for this. Excellent. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. So I just read um, Natasha Brown's Assembly. Did I get that right? Her name right? Assembly. It's a novella. It's 100 pages. And it's probably the best thing that I've read this year. It totally knocked my socks off. If we've been discussing Jordan Peele and those sorts of sensibilities, um, not that it's a horror. It's kind of horror. Like some ways, just <laughs> totally go into it with absolutely no expectations and it will knock your socks off. Just one of the Amazing. most thrilling new voices on the scene I've ever encountered. Uh, from the Love Oz YA side of things, I've got <laughs> Rhiannon Wiles. Um, is it Harry Hamlet's Heart? I love that. Yes. Oh, oh my, my gosh. gosh. <laughs> that's, that's making me swoon. Just, just swoon. The romance there. Wow. Swoon. The swoon yeah. is happening. The swoon is real. And then I've also just got to shout out one of my authors that I rep as agent, Sinead Stubbins. In my defense, I have oh. no defense. A collection of personal short stories that are so funny. And I keep revisiting them in my lockdowns because I will just randomly be like cleaning the kitchen or folding the laundry and remember a line that Sinead Stubbins wrote. <laughs> and it just makes me giggle and chuckle so I reach for the audio book or the physical book and I just open to that and then I find myself an hour has gone by and I'm rereading because Sinead Stubbins it's like she unscrewed the top of my head and poured out my innermost (laughs) embarrassing thoughts uh and articulated them better than I ever could so yeah there you go and for she's so funny if she's if she's listening to this just know that I love and adore you uh and for what I'm watching um oh you know what's back on Netflix is um is it called Never Have I Ever? No. Oh I've already I've already like yeah 
Yeah, the season two of the Mindy Kaling teen series is just sublime. It's so funny. Uh, McEnroe as the narrator of this teen girl's inner conscience is just, it is so brilliant. Of course, Mindy Kaling came up with this. She's so funny and so witty and such a good writer. I also love her books, by the by, as audiobooks Mm. do. Brilliant. So that has just been a joy for me, as well as probably rewatching the Marvel movies. (laughs) <laughs> because, oh my god because we're that's all Washington. i did all weekend because of black widow i've been on a marble kick oh my gosh how good was florence Pugh? florence Pugh <sighs> was so freaking good and she david was... harbour and rachel <laughs> weiss uh so good and then i'm i'm re-watching i just watched loki which mm. was a disappointment but Ooh, you didn't like loki uh look I don't really get the Tom Hiddleston obsession. It's a very good hair flip, but just not for me. Uh, but because of some stuff that comes out in Loki, I've gone back to rewatch Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp, which I think is a really good franchise thing. I think there's some hidden... I think there's a big spoiler in Loki about what could be coming with the multiverse. And it's also what? hidden in the Ant-Man. Yes. So I've been watching those, trying to get ahead of all the Marvel fan people who are theorizing this. And I just want to be part of the conversation. Like a cool you're, about, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> uh, yeah. What's the next Ant-Man film? I think it's Quantum Mania. Uh, so yeah. yeah, watch out for that. I feel like Loki gave big hints about what's to come. And I just, my little writerly brain does tip my hat to the producers of the Marvel cinematic universe and how they're connecting it all and they're now doing like a television series connection and that's just really cool to me and you know highly recommend for lockdown viewing it's escapist it's wonderful to watch Endgame and remember the joy of sitting in a cinema full of people just gasping at certain scenes of Infinity War Endgame yeah like you know Chris Evans is a delight uh really (laughs) Like Elizabeth Olsen, WandaVision was fantastic. Yeah, just the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It can just be fun, people. Sometimes in lockdown, you just need a little bit of action hero, super, super comic book adaptations. Yeah. Ticket. Speaking as a Melbourneian, <laughs> I can attest. Sometimes you just need the MCU. Just have some fun. That was a hundred percent. I love those directs. That was my weekend. I watched Never Have I Ever, and then I and I watched Black Widow, and then I started on a yeah. bit of a Marvel thing that's probably going to go for a while. I'm thinking of going in chronological timeline order. Oh, I just tried doing that, but I started with Civil War for some uh, because of the Black, <laughs> because of the Black Widow association with Bucharest in it, a uh, Bucharest, uh, and everything. I went back to Civil War, and I was like, oh yeah, not as good as Infinity and Endgame. But, but but I can recommend the Spider-Man Far From Home, Homecoming. Delight. Tom Holland's Spider-Man is just a joy. And Zendaya is mwah, just as MJ. So perfect. And a new one coming up of the Spider-Man film soon. I'm so excited for that because, yeah, the end of Homecoming when he's revealed as Peter Parker. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. And Jake Gyllenhaal is a villain. Oh, my mm. gosh. So good. So, and I do remember watching Homecoming at a packed cinema in Brisbane. Uh, Like, I mean packed. I mean a (laughs) packed cinema in Brisbane in 2019, I want to say. And how joyful that experience was. And it just makes me crave cinema popcorn. 
You can't oh. buy popcorn from the supermarket and have it at home and it be the same. You need it's not the same at all. You need it to like seep into your pores as you're sitting eating it. And you yeah, it has to, to get, be in the air. Yeah, precise. And it has to be a bucket bigger than your head that you promise yourself you're not going to eat all of it. But by the time the trailers have finished, it's all gone. And you think, who did this? Who was responsible for eating all of the popcorn? I love this. The characters in your book touch briefly on this subject. I remember yes. Pop, popcorn in cinema. It's a, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing <laughs> that, you know, I can't wait to go back to the cinemas. Me I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so keen. <laughs> we, we've, we've strayed a little bit off topic, but I've enjoyed every second. <laughs> um, thank you. <laughs> thank you so, so, so much for talking to us today. It's been a delight. Thank you, Booktopia. I love and adore you. Your sales people no doubt know that from how many books I buy from you. I think <gasps> you I think you all know how much of a fan I am. Uh, <laughs> oh. I'm I'm on your website frequently. It has been my lockdown coping mechanism has been to think, I'd like to read this. I wonder if Booktopia has yes, they do. It's totally in stock. I'm totally oh, buying it. That is wonderful <laughs> to hear. Trying to keep things in stock at the moment is a double work. I greatly appreciate. <laughs> I greatly appreciated that you sent me boxes and boxes of the monster of her age to sign in my lounge room. Uh, I think it was 648 copies of signed the monster of her age uh, that I signed in my UGG boots. So people listening at home, you can have a limited edition signed by the UGG boot wearing author. <laughs> if you, if you would like, while stocks last. Uh, it no. is true. At the time of recording, we have still got signed copies available. So Pop on over. We would we would love you. Um, Thank to you. Have one and they're still available. And as a sign off, I would just say yes. I love Booktopia. I love what you do for the Australian publishing industry and writers here. And anyone listening at home, buy books from Booktopia and independent bookstores, Australian owned, and don't buy books from people who want to colonize the moon or <laughs> shoot themselves off into space, but then insist on coming back in a cowboy hat. Don't do it. That you is know who I'm talking about. We don't need to say the name. But you, that is some wonderful yeah. advice. I am picking up some books from my local indie bookstore later today. Yeah. Um, so I think at a time like this, if you have a, if you have a local, many people in Australia don't. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But if you if you have a local, you know, maybe see what they're doing to sell books at this time. Mm -hmm. But if you are online looking for a book, we would love you to buy it from Booktopia. Amen. And I would especially love you to buy a book by Danielle Binks from Booktopia. <laughs> you will not be disappointed. <laughs> Thank you kindly. What a send off. Thank you. Just, I'm just full of love. Just full of love right now. Um, right back at you. <laughs> yes. So, and you can buy all of Danielle Binks' books from Booktopia. Thanks for listening and never stop reading. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.